So I'd like to start this evening with a perhaps well-known story. In the time of the Buddha, there was a boy born to a learned Brahmin and his wife. And when the boy was born, the father cast the boy's horoscope and found that he was born under the robber constellation, that it was likely he would live a life of crime. So he was named Ahimsaka, which means harmless. And his parents raised him well and tried to guide him towards a good life. He was a very intelligent boy, and he was sent to a famous university teacher for more training when he was of age. In this training, he surpassed all the other students and became the teacher's favorite student, even taking meals with the teacher's family. He became like a son to the teacher. This was a problem for the other students. They became jealous and resentful, and they plotted how they might cause a schism between Ahimsaka and his teacher. So they decided they would approach the teacher in three separate groups and say bad things about Ahimsaka. So the first group went to the teacher and said that Ahimsaka was plotting against him. And the teacher didn't believe it, and he told them to go away. But then the second group of students went, and they spoke in a similar way. And then a third group of students went, and they said the same, and they even suggested that the teacher check it out for himself. So suspicion started to grow in the teacher, and he became convinced in his mind that his favorite student wanted to push him out he decided that he had to do something. And he decided he would have Ahimsaka killed. So he devised a terrible plan. He called his student and told him that now that he was at the end of his studies, he had to give the master a gift of 1,000 human fingers. And at first, Ahimsaka was shocked and protested that he couldn't possibly do such a thing. He couldn't consider such violence. But the master was insistent, and he told him that this would be the culmination of his teaching. And over time, Ahimsaka became convinced, perhaps because there was some latent tendency toward violence in him. So he went out in search of his victims. He went into the forest, and whenever travelers came by, he killed them and took a finger, threading them and wearing them as a necklace. And so he became known as Angulimala, which means finger garland. Word got out, and people stayed away from the forest. So he started coming into the villages and even into people's homes in search of another finger for his garland. People fled their villages, and soon the king got word of what was going on. And he pronounced that Ahimsaka, or Angulimala, must be captured. When Ahimsaka's mother heard about this, her intuition told her that 
this must be her long-lost son who had never returned from university and who had such an inauspicious fortune told at his birth. So she decided to go out and find him, to stop him before the king did, to convince him to give up his evil ways. It so happened that when she began her search, Angulimala had 999 fingers in his garland and needed only one more. Meanwhile, the Buddha, with his all-encompassing vision, saw what was about to happen. And he knew that killing one's mother was one of five terrible offenses that produce an immediate rebirth in hell. Out of his great compassion, he decided to intervene. It's said that he knew Angulimala from former existences, and that in those former existences, he had conquered Angulimala's strength of body with his own strength of mind. So the Buddha set out, even though many people warned him not to. And sure enough, when Angulimala saw his mother approaching on the path, even though he knew who she was, he was so blinded at that point by his mission and the violence that had become part of his nature that he was ready to kill her for that last finger. But just then the Buddha appeared on the path between Angulimala and his mother. And so he thought, why should I kill my mother when I can kill this monk instead? He quickly approached the Buddha. But even though the Buddha was walking at a normal pace and Angulimala was rushing to catch up with the Buddha, he couldn't reach him. He thought, how strange. Usually I can run down even a very swift horse or even a chariot, but now I can't catch up with this monk who's walking at a normal pace. So he stopped and he called out to the Buddha, stop, recluse, stop. And the Buddha turned towards him and said, I have stopped, Angulimala. Now you stop too. Angulimala asked the Buddha, How is it that you who are still walking say you have stopped, but now, when I have stopped, you say that I have not stopped? What is the meaning of it? And the Buddha replied, Angulimala, I have stopped forever. I abstain from harming living beings. But you have no restraint. That is why I have stopped and you have not. At hearing the Buddha's words, all the forces of good that were present in Angulimala broke through the cruelty and he understood. He was moved to the depths of his being by the compassion of the Buddha And on the spot, he renounced his life of violence and became a monk. Not surprisingly, Angulimala had a hard time as a monk, and he found it difficult to practice because of the repercussions of all that he had done. But the Buddha helped him to see that since his ordination, his intentions were pure, and that he could trust that. And so, through diligent efforts, he did become enlightened.
It's such a powerful moment in the story when the Buddha says, I have stopped. Now you stop. Just hearing that line, something in me rests, feels a bit freer. So this is the theme of the talk this evening, stopping or coming to stillness on a few different levels through our practice. In the story of Angulimala, the Buddha asks him to stop the violence, to stop harming living beings. And certainly, this is an important part of our own practice. Fortunately, we're dealing with much subtler levels of violence or harming than Angulimala was. But the practice of non-harming in our actions, in our speech, and even in our intentions is something that can be continually refined. The precepts remind us of our commitment to non-harming. Our commitment to our own well-being and the well-being of others. We make the effort to pay attention to our actions and to refrain from acting in ways that cause suffering. So we're stopping or we're letting go of pursuing that which does not lead to happiness. Coming to a deep place of stillness is both the end result of practice and also the support or the means along the way. In the same way, the precepts are guidelines through which we support and develop our practice And acting in accordance with them is also the expression of a realized or awakened mind. How else do we stop in our meditation practice? On the most tangible level, we find stillness externally. So we leave the busyness of daily life and seclude ourselves. We retreat. Sometimes this idea of a retreat can be a difficult thing for our friends or family to understand. When we go back home and we're asked, did you have a nice retreat? It's not an easy question to answer. It is a kind of a break from daily life, to be sure. We don't have to go shopping, or we don't have to cook, or go to our workplace. We don't have to have the normal distractions, television, telephone, radio, the internet. But it's not as though we're just taking a break. a close examination of how we suffer and why is hard work. The stillness of seclusion is a great support in this process of drawing near to those questions. 
And then we take a posture of stillness. Stilling the body is conducive to stilling the mind. And in a way, it's a radical act. Just to stop, physically. Years ago, someone wrote a mock brochure for IMS that said, it's far better to do nothing than to waste your time. But doing nothing can be quite a challenge. It's kind of odd or kind of strange that that's true. In a way, it points to how we're living our lives, usually, many of us, in quite a lot of activity, a lot of motion. Sometimes it seems as though we never stop. We're running from one thing to the next. A dear friend of mine told me several years ago that she wanted to stop living her life as though it were an emergency. Her words have really stayed with me over the years. I could really relate to that. Sometimes the pace of our lives gets pretty crazy. And it can be a hard pattern to step out of. I know when I'm not on retreat, just in daily life, if I have some time off, sometimes it's hard just to step out of the activity, to stop, to be still, to simply allow the day to unfold. Instead, I'm planning it out or filling it up, cramming it full of things that I think will make me happy. And at times we bring this same energy with us into retreat. I know in my own practice over the years, I've seen times on retreat when I'm practicing with that kind of intensity. It's got an edge to it. Trying to get it right or somehow in the right timing, whatever that is. Sometimes it seems as though sleep is our only refuge from all this activity, all this doing. And I think that's why the bliss of sleep is called the poor man's nibbana. So just slowing down and coming to stillness physically is powerful. Sometimes it's hard to do, though, because when we stop our bodies inside, that energy is still going, still kind of revved up, and it can be uncomfortable. Walking meditation can be a great balancing of that kind of energy. Simply grounding the awareness in the sensations of the body, moving. Sometimes, if there is a lot of energy in the system, it's useful with the walking to start with a broader field of awareness, feeling the whole body or the grosser sensations, and then gradually refine the attention as the energy settles, tuning into the sensations in the legs or feet, feeling into the range of subtler sensations, 
So coming into a kind of stillness gently, without forcing. Another way that we practice a kind of stopping is in our relationship to discomfort. So maybe in a sitting there's an itch or some discomfort, some painful sensation. And so we make just a little adjustment to ease that pain. But what happens? In the next few minutes or so, something else might arise, some other bundle of unpleasant sensations. If we're unwilling to be with those sensations, we can spend the whole time just moving. And if we practice stopping, being still, it's very powerful. It's not making our practice into an endurance test, but there's just so much more that we can learn in looking at the mind and its reactions to what's happening than in fidgeting. At times, we might learn that we're moving at the slightest hint of discomfort, that we move out of fear that it might become unbearable, rather than looking closely at what's actually a minor annoyance. Sitting through those minor annoyances can be very beneficial. There's a deepening that happens when we're still. And there's a kind of strength or stability that comes as we learn that we can be with things that we thought were unbearable. We gain confidence in knowing that we can open to our experience. But perhaps we might see that there's a tendency to push ourselves kind of bully ourselves to be macho meditators. The gritting of the teeth and hanging in there no matter what's happening. If the attitude is bullying, then it's not really so much more productive than fidgeting. Because what are we learning in that case? Effortful practice is useful to be sure. But if we're pushing ourselves, forcing or fostering a kind of inner violence, it's not conducive to being open, present, balanced. And we need that kind of balanced presence to really see clearly, to learn from our experience, to grow in wisdom, to find freedom from suffering. So we find a middle way, stretching ourselves, exploring our edges with a sense of interest and respecting our limits. So coming to stillness in an exterior way, through seclusion, guarding the sense doors, refraining from actions that are not conducive to a peaceful heart and mind, and settling into stillness physically. How do we arrive at a place of stillness in an interior way? 
when the agitation or restlessness is more apparent in the mind, when what we find is a lot of thoughts flooding the mind, either reviewing something that has happened or planning something that might happen. Perhaps you've noticed the tendency to create an entire difficult, painful scenario feeling all of the conflict in it and trying to figure out how to handle it when actually the whole thing is completely fabricated. Just a thought in the mind. Often when that's going on, when the mind is active like that, it's easy to get disheartened. So what does coming to stillness mean? then. Reconnecting with the stillness of the body can be a good support. Grounding again in the present moment through the sensations of contact with the cushion or the chair or the feet on the floor when walking. Connecting with just one breath at a time. Anchoring Coming back again and again to a meditation object, such as the breath or the body, is useful in cutting through the streams of thoughts and emotions that carry us away and out of the present moment. Every time we bring our attention back to a breath or back to a sensation, it's a return to the present, a return to mindfulness. And over time, doing that, concentration develops and deepens, which itself is a kind of stopping or stillness of mind. This is another story from the suttas about the powers of concentration. It's called the Junha Sutta, or Moonlit. On one occasion, the Blessed One was staying in Rajagaha at the bamboo grove, the squirrel's sanctuary. Now at that time, Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Maha Moggallana were staying in Pigeon Cave. Then, on a moonlit night, Venerable Sariputta, his head newly shaven, was sitting in the open air, having attained a certain level of concentration. It so happened that two yakas, which are troublesome spirits, who were companions, were flying from north to south on some business or other. They saw Venerable Sariputta, his head newly shaven, sitting in the open air. Seeing him, the first yaka said to the second, I'm inspired to give this contemplative a blow on the head. When this was said, the second yaka said to the first, Enough of that, my good friend. Don't lay a hand on the contemplative. He's an outstanding contemplative of great power and great might. A second time, the first yaka said to the second, I'm inspired to give this contemplative a blow on the head. 
A second time, the second yaka said to the first, Enough of that, my friend. Don't lay a hand on the contemplative. He's an outstanding contemplative of great power and great might. A third time, the first yaka said to the second, I'm inspired to give this contemplative a blow on the head. And a third time, the second said to the first, Don't do it. Then the first yaka, ignoring the second yaka, gave Venerable Sariputta a blow on the head. And with that blow, he might have knocked over an elephant six or seven cubits tall or split a rocky crag. But right there, the yaka, yelling, I'm burning, fell into the great hell. Now, Venerable Moggallana, with his divine eye, pure and surpassing the human, saw the yaka give Venerable Sariputta a blow on the head. So seeing this, he went to Sariputta and on arrival said to him, I hope you are well, friend Sariputta. I hope you are comfortable. I hope you are feeling no pain. I am well, friend Moggallana. I am comfortable, but I do have a slight headache. (laughs) How amazing, friend Sariputta. How awesome. How great your power and might. Just now, a yaka gave you a blow on the head. So great was that blow that he might have knocked over an elephant or split a rocky crag. But all you say is this, I am well, friend Moggallana. I am comfortable, but I do have a slight headache. How amazing, friend Moggallana, said Sariputta. How awesome, how great your power and might Where you saw a yaka just now, I didn't even see a dust devil. The Blessed One, with his divine ear, pure and surpassing the human, heard those two great beings speak in praise of one another in this way. Then on realizing the significance of that, the Blessed One on that occasion exclaimed, Whose mind is like rock, steady, unmoved, dispassionate for things that spark passion, unangered by things that spark anger. When one's mind is developed like this, from where can there come suffering and stress? Don't worry if you don't have the kind of concentration that Sariputta had. In each moment of mindfulness is a kind of stillness or stopping because of the way mindfulness penetrates experience rather than being swept away by whatever is arising. It sinks into the breath into a sensation, into a feeling. It sinks into the moment, even if what the moment holds is agitation or a flurry of thinking or a painful emotion. As mindfulness grows, we're cultivating the habit of stillness within the stream of experience. 
Whenever we're mindful of thinking, perhaps noting, thinking, thinking, rather than getting lost in the story, we're stopping. It's as though we've gotten off of the train of thought and are standing for a moment at the station, watching the train go by. It might still be a busy station, with lots of trains going by. But we begin to see that we don't need to jump on every one and take it to the end of the line. It's good to be aware of the attitude with which the attention is brought back to the present moment. Is it one of condemnation or judgment? Or is it one of interest? Are we pulling the attention back, forcing it back? Or are we simply noticing what's happening, beginning again in that moment? These are Krishnamurti's words. Have you ever sat very quietly without any movement? You try it. Sit really still with your back straight and observe what your mind is doing. Don't try to control it. Don't say it should not jump from one thought to another. But just be aware of how your mind is jumping. Don't do anything about it. But watch it as from the banks of a river you watch the river flow by. In the flowing river there are so many things. Fishes, leaves, dead animals. But it is always living, moving. And your mind is like that. It is everlastingly restless, flitting from one thing to another like a butterfly. Just watch your mind. It's great fun. If you try it as fun, as an amusing thing, you'll find that the mind begins to settle down without any effort on your part to control it. Then there is no censor, no judge, no evaluator. And when the mind is thus very quiet itself, spontaneously still, you will discover what it is to be happy, to take delight in anything or nothing, to know the joy of living, smiling, looking straight into the face of another without any sense of fear. Are we practicing with that kind of acceptance? Simply watching the mind, the thoughts, the various emotions, giving all of them our kind, clear attention without censor, without judgment. The more we practice, the more we see that we can't stop any of it from coming or going. And thankfully, 
inner stillness isn't dependent on stopping it. A perspective that's been very helpful for me is to remember that there's nothing I need to add to my experience and nothing that I need to take away from it. It sounds simple, but when I put it into practice, it's very freeing. Can it be enough? Whatever's happening. Can I remember this too? When there's resistance to some aspect of experience. Nothing to add, nothing to take away. I think it's a common misunderstanding in meditation practice that the thinking process will cease or that we'll no longer experience difficult emotions. That if we were doing this right, our minds and hearts would be empty and clear, totally silent and still. But we're not trying to avoid experience. We're opening to it. And through that process of acceptance and investigation, we're developing wisdom and compassion. As the field of awareness becomes more and more inclusive, knowing whatever is happening in any moment's experience, the rising and falling of the breath, the pressure, tension, heat, coolness, tingling of the body, thoughts of planning, judging, fantasizing, different states of mind, anger, peace, calm, letting it come and go, being with the experience fully, knowing it directly, seeing it change, we come to know on a very deep level that it's not personal, not I. When we stop identifying with any of it, not clinging to anything, even the most pleasant moments, the peace, the calm, the happiness, knowing that it all comes and it all goes, we come to an even deeper stillness or stopping. Ajahn Chah, the Thai forest master, tells a story about a cobra. He said, mental activity is like a poisonous cobra. If we don't interfere with a cobra, it simply goes its own way. Even though it may be extremely poisonous, we're not affected by it. We don't go near it or take hold of it, so it doesn't bite us. The cobra does what it is natural for a cobra to do. That's the way it is. If you you are clever, you will leave it alone. Likewise, you let be 
that which is not good. You let it be according to its own nature. You also let be that which is good. Don't grab on to liking and disliking, just as you wouldn't interfere with the cobra. One who is clever will have this kind of attitude toward the various moods that arises that arise in his mind. When goodness arises, we let it be good. We understand its nature. In the same way, we let be the not good. We let it, we don't take hold of it because we don't want anything. We don't want good, we don't want not good. We don't want heaviness, nor lightness, happiness, nor suffering. When our wanting is at an end, peace is firmly established. In these ways, the practice is a process of coming to stillness, the external stillness of slowing down, letting go of busyness, the protected inner stillness of a life that's lived in harmony with natural law, knowing that our actions have consequences. And the stillness in mind and heart of non-reactivity, non-clinging, not being swayed by all the many passing mental and emotional states, our internal weather systems, seeing them clearly, feeling them directly, but not investing in them, not investing them with a sense of I, So what about that poor man's nibbana? We can imagine that letting go that we do when it's time to sleep. Just surrendering, resting, letting go. We can do this in our practice as we let go of struggles with what's happening the inner battles that we wage with ourselves or with our experience, the striving to get it right, the self-images that we carry, just surrendering, resting, allowing, but awake, alert, interested, just a moment of mindful presence, a moment of seeing clearly without clinging, without resistance. Through meditation practice, we begin to find the stillness in all that we do. And this doesn't mean that we're passive, that we don't think or feel or act in our lives. The Buddha although he had stopped in a very profound way, 
continued to teach for many years. But it does mean that we can learn to rest in inner stillness, in the peace of a balanced heart and mind where our actions are born out of wisdom and compassion rather than clinging or fear. This inner stillness is available in any moment. It's a matter of learning how to recognize it, how to open to it. And we learn that through our meditation practice. I'll close with these words by Mary Oliver. So just listen and then let her words and my words all fall away. And we'll take a few moments together in the stillness. Toad. I was walking by. He was sitting there. It was full morning, so the heat was heavy on his sand-colored head and his webbed feet. I squatted beside him at the edge of the path. He didn't move. I began to talk. I talked about summer and about time, the pleasures of eating, the terrors of the night, about this cup we call a life, about happiness and how good it feels, the heat of the sun between the shoulder blades. He looked neither up nor down, which didn't necessarily mean he was either afraid or asleep. I felt his energy stored under his tongue, perhaps, and behind his bulging eyes. I talked about how the world seems to me five feet tall, the blue sky all around my head. I said, I wondered how it seemed to him, down there, intimate with the dust. He might have been a Buddha, did not move, blink, or frown. Not a tear fell from those gold-rimmed eyes as the refined anguish of language passed over him.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.